Coming up on Tech News Today, we'll explain how BitTorrent breaks Tor security. Also, Cisco drops Flip. Say hello to IE10 and dial a phone with your mind. All that more coming up. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Tech News Today is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Tech News Today for Tuesday, April 12th, 2011. Tech News Today brought to you by Gazelle, the easy way to sell or recycle the used gadgets lying around your home or office. Don't just sell it, Gazelle it! For a 5% bonus payment for your used gadgets, go to gazelle.com, bonus code TWIT. Welcome to Tech News Today. I'm Tom Merritt. I'm Sarah Lane. I'm Aya Zaktar. And I'm Jason Howell. This is a show where we should show where we're drunk. You know, this is a Whatever. show. Right. Tom, it's not Friday yet. I, no, right. I feel like this is becoming an issue. This is a show <laughs> where we kick around Tom. A few beers. It's Thirsty Tuesday. <laughs> Doesn't even make sense, Tom. It's Thirsty Tuesday. <laughs> All right. Uh, we have got some uh, good stories for you, uh, including a, uh, a, a one about Facebook uh, under siege again for from Paul Siglia, Internet Explorer 10. But we're going to kick off uh, with a story about how BitTorrent isn't safe even on the Tor network. And uh, joining us from NAB to help us discuss this story uh, was Darren Kitchen. <laughs> right now, up until the so moment much. I began to introduce him. I saw him. Yeah, I, he saw, was there. I saw him. He flickered in. We have to believe in Darren for him to actually... Uh, I believe. Believe. Oh, right. I believe. Well, that didn't quite work. Maybe we'll do the next story. And yeah. Come back to Darren. See, yeah, let's do that. I told you that I didn't believe he was there. <laughs> and then you're like, no, no, he's Oh, there. he was moving. No, he was moving. There. I saw him. I saw him moving. And blinking, in fact. He's calling right now. All right. Yeah, because I don't want to get into the whole Facebook uh, Paul Celia thing until we're sure we can sink our teeth into it. Right. And spend uh, time with it. Uh, I don't want to oh, bore and, and how Darren. we will sink. Essentially, what's going on with the story we're going to talk to Darren about is uh, the Onion Router, Tor. Uh, has a vulnerability that allows people to be able to track your IP address if you're using BitTorrent. A lot of people want to hide their trackers. Some people because they're doing something nefarious. Some people because they just don't think it's anybody's business what torrents they're downloading, whether they're Linux ISOs or pirated movies. Uh, and some folks have figured out that using the Onion Router to hide that isn't going to give you the security that you thought. Now, the way the Onion Router works uh, is it forwards your traffic through layers of servers. So, you know, from one server to another server to another server. Hence the onion. Yeah, so the layer, like the layers of an onion, it's hard for anyone looking at the traffic when it comes out of the Onion Router and figure out where it came from originally. So it hides your origination. What's happening with this story on Ars Technica today uh, is that uh, some researchers have figured out how to fool you into letting you letting them know what your IP address is, right? So if you were to put uh, the uh, the torrent tracker itself uh, up and be using Tor, you would you would think that everything is hidden in the in the Onion Router, right? They wouldn't be able to tell your IP address. But remember, hiding the tracker isn't hiding everything on the torrent. Uh, hiding the tracker only hides what's, uh, what's actually starting the download. What happens with the Onion Router is a lot of folks will run into delays because the Onion Router is, is, is 
is slow because it's using all those mm -hmm. proxies. Uh, and, and, and so we, we end up with people saying, you know what, I'll start the tracker on the Onion Router, but I'll leave the torrent going on its own. Uh, outside because nobody can see what's in the torrent after that point. Uh, and Darren is finally with us uh, from NAB. So if you can pick it up from from there, Darren, uh, we've ex we explained about the Onion Router. We've explained about using torrents with the Onion Router. What's the vulnerability that was presented at the Usenix conference workshop paper? Sure. What INRAA uh, France was basically showing off is kind of the same sort of attack that we've seen before with the Onion Router, and that is since... The Onion Router is basically a community of people all sharing their connections as nodes or super nodes. Uh, basically, the people on the endpoint can see the unencrypted traffic because they are the exit, they are the gateway onto the public internet. And the idea is that they don't know all of the hops in between. And since they only see a little bit of the traffic, it isn't enough that they can uh, do anything really that malicious with it. Now, that said, what this uh, research group has set up is a bunch of um, honeypots and a bunch of their own fake, or not fake, but their own exit nodes that can see a man-in-the-middle attack uh, in the sense that they can see the very end pieces. And what they're doing is if they see that there's a BitTorrent connection going through that, that stream, they're going to go ahead and sniff that up. And when it... Uh, sends it out to the tracker that you're trying to connect to, when it gets the response, it's actually going to modify the response that's coming to that tracker and change the IP address that the tracker is, tr is trying to point you at to one of their own honeypot computers. So since it's changed the IP address, uh, when it gets back to you, you don't know the wiser that anything has changed. And when you go and hit that honeypot, now you've basically told that honeypot who you are with your, your um, public IP address. So essentially, it's because you're running the torrent outside. The tracker is under on tour, but the torrent files aren't being traded on tour. And so once they make themselves part of that torrent, uh, then they can trick you into telling them because they they've honeypot they've put a honeypot out saying, "Hey, we're serving the torrent now too." They can trick you into giving you that IP address directly, right? Right, and it's the same kind of attack that we've seen before with you know basically any kind of man in the middle where you can let all that traffic throw up flow through your computer as a man in the middle. In this case, it just so happens to be on tour, and you can alter the information that comes back. So for example, Tom, if you were trying to get to Google, and I was the man in the middle, I could take that request back from Google, and instead of you getting the Google logo, I could put kittens on the screen or something like that. Uh, it's the same idea that instead of kittens, in this sense, it's one of their honeypots, and uh, it, it gets into the idea that since you're just using Tor for the initial connection to the tracker, and then the rest of it, you know, there's a lot of other stuff that's UDP that doesn't actually go, you know, a different protocol that doesn't go over the Onion router, uh, they're able to get your public IP address. And what's kind of more scary in this sense is now that they've identified you with that torrent traffic, if you're doing other things over the Onion router, uh, in addition to BitTorrent, they can actually see that uh, kind of traffic because for efficiency's sake, the Onion Router tries to recycle streams that they've already created. It's kind of processor intensive to create a new private stream through the network, but once you've created it, it's you know reasonably fast. So if you're recycling that stream for not just torrent traffic, but say other unencrypted means, like if you're you know, doing unencrypted email or instant messaging, stuff like that, they could use that to you know view those kinds of conversations and stuff like that. In fact, the Tor project leader, uh, Roger, Ding Roger Dingledean, has advised users uh, that the only way to really protect yourself is not use BitTorrent on the Onion Router. 
the, the second best way would be to set up separate sessions, one for any BitTorrent you want to do and one for everything else you want to do. So you have, you have separate instances of Tor. Ars Technica also uh, says you could, you could look at something like OneSwarm, which is from the University of Washington, uh, designed to give you BitTorrent client anonymity and privacy in your client so you don't even mess with the Onion Router. Uh, and then uh, have you ever messed with I2P? That's another one they mentioned in the Ars Technica article. No, I haven't uh, played with I2P. I see that it, it's designed with actually BitTorrent traffic in mind. Obviously, the uh, Tor folks would love for people to stop using uh, torrents over their network just because it's so intensive. Uh, but you know, that said, there's also so many other options. If, say, you're using uTorrent, there's plenty of proxies that you could get. I believe even the Pirate Bay offers one. Uh, that was a story a while back. Yeah, all right. Uh, thank you, uh, Darren, for, for taking the time out of your busy NAB schedule to, to help us look into this, and, and uh, we'll let you get on your way now. All right. Sounds good. See you All guys right. next week. Yeah, we'll Hi, see, you guys. see you on Monday. Darren Kitchen, Hack5.org. And, of course, uh, you can find him on Mondays right here on Tech News Today. Now let's get into the wonderful story of Paul Siglia. If you recognize that name, it's because he's the guy who, re who uh, earlier this year uh, sued Facebook. Maybe it was last year. Mm -hmm. Sued Facebook saying that he and Mark Zuckerberg had an agreement when Zuckerberg was at Harvard uh, that gave him 50% ownership in Facebook. And a lot of people chuckled at the story, first of all, because he, uh, unrelated, is a convicted felon for swindling people out of wood chips. Wood chips. He's the wood chipper guy. Right. So a lot of people were like, yeah, well, this guy, come on. He's he back. came out of nowhere to say that he owned part of Facebook. That's not true. What a nut. He's filing a revised complaint against Mark Zuckerberg in U.S. District Court in Buffalo, New York, and he's got the <laughs> law firm of DLA Piper to take him on as a client. This is not some obscure law firm either. No. DLA Piper is huge. I mean, they have 3,000 employees around the world. I mean, they cover, you know, litigation for pretty much anything you could possibly want to file a lawsuit over. Yeah, it's kind of a big law firm. If you've been to law school, you've heard of DLA Piper, and they don't just take on cases lightly. So uh, I know that Siegley has a ton of new documents that, that DLA Piper is saying is legitimate. They're saying that there's... Emails. He's got, he says, I got emails, and, he's, and they, they've filed them as part of the court case. You can read them. You can see them on Business Insider. You can see the actual context of the emails. And it seems like a very tumultuous relationship between Zuckerberg, uh, who was working for Siglia on something called Street Facts, and he was using code that way. And then a lot of threats by Siglia against Zuckerberg, like calling his parents. Yeah, about the, the short version of the story is that Siglia hired Zuckerberg to develop some code for Street Facts mm -hmm. around search. And Zuckerberg wanted to use it in the Facebook that he was developing at the same time. So he agreed uh, to take $1,000 from Siglia and give him part ownership in the Facebook so that he could use that code in the Facebook. At least that's the story that the emails tell. Facebook says this is a fraudulent lawsuit brought by a convicted felon, and we look forward to defending it in court. From the outset, we've said that the scam artist claims are ridiculous, and this newest complaint is no better. They, they say the emails are fake. It's interesting because um, Facebook doesn't deny that the two had an agreement. Uh, for Street Facts, that was actually something that Mark Zuckerberg was paid to, to produce uh, for Siglia. However, Facebook is saying everything that mentions the Facebook and all of these emails um, or any agreement that uh, Siglia has produced, that was just added in. I mean, that is a straight-up lie. Well, how does Facebook know that besides Zuckerberg saying... 
I didn't write any of those things because this law firm is saying, we've done our research. We know that these are real emails. Well, there should be some access to Zuckerberg's files considering that whole uh, Winklevoss uh, scenario. Which, I mean, by the way, uh, as a sidebar, they've refiled their claim that was dismissed yeah, they, out of court. They were supposed to get $65 million in the settlement. They're yeah. still unhappy with that. But, but, but there is data out there. So you can check the emails against you know, Zuckerberg's emails to see if there's anything. I mean, if you look at the actual context of the emails, they don't seem to get along. I don't know if he would delete them. They did end a business relationship. And I think Celia claims that uh, Zuckerberg was going to pay him back $2,000. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, like a canceled check by Zuckerberg could be enough evidence to simply be like, yeah, I paid you back. We're done. Well, well apparently he never did. That's the argument. Also, it, it, there's an email, there's a purported email that says, I will mail you back the $2,000 for your trouble more if it will repair our business relationship. That doesn't mean Paul agreed to take the $2,000 back and dissolve the I relationship. I think he actually just didn't reply. Well, What's interesting about this is, and I mean, it's it, so many news organizations are kind of breathless about this story because it's just, it plays into this melodramatic story that we all know because there was a movie made about the social network. You know, it's like the timing couldn't be better, especially, you know, the Winklevoss twins must just be like jumping up and down on their trampoline being like, yay, maybe we've got another case here because it, it let's just say that these uh, emails that Siglia has produced are legitimate. Mark Zuckerberg pretty much said, and it ties in with, with the timing of him moving to California and working on the Facebook and stealth mode saying, you know what, um, yeah, that project that you paid me $1,000 for, it's not going anywhere. No one's using it. Of course, they were. It was a big deal at Harvard. And I'm working out in California, and I'm just going to give you your money back, and let's just end this on okay terms. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry for everything, which does make it seem like behind the scenes he's going, I cannot have this guy be involved in this at all. i got to get him off my back and make sure that we end this amicably. Right, because some of the emails are like, hey, I've already moved out to California for the break, and I, I'm going to take the, uh, the the website offline, and yeah, it's, it's failing. It's, it's just a... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's, it's not going to happen. Yeah. What's, now, what's weird about this is a lot of this has to do with confused antecedents. A lot of the emails I've read refer to the site, and mm. I'm taking it offline, and, and that website you know, I, that you paid me for. Is he talking about streetfacts.com, which Paul Siglia hired Zuckerberg to code for, or is he talking about Facebook? Yeah, there's, there is some vagueness in there, and I think there's some contracts where Siglia is claiming that he combined two different documents to make this thing, and that's why they don't look anything like each other. So one page is about street facts, and one page is about the Facebook. So it looks really suspicious. And back to that point about the $2,000 and agreeing, if he actually cashes that check, or if it has anything in the memo line saying this is to settle our, our, our deal, then his, by his action, he's agreed to this whole thing. So I want to see what Zuckerberg is going to actually present in his, in, his, uh, in his evidence, because we don't have a response yet. All we have is a ton of court papers from Siegley's attorneys, and they look good, but we got to see what the other side's going to do. I mean, for DLA, DLA Piper, and I, as you probably know more about this, uh, being an attorney yourself, if they don't go anywhere with this, does this ruin their reputation? I mean, do, what do they have to lose? Okay, well, you have to do, these, you have to do all the stuff in good faith. So if they are a subject of fraud. So let's say that uh, Siegley did a ton of work and made this look really great and DLA Piper did everything they could to see that this was authenticated and they could figure it out. Well, they're not going to get in too much trouble. But right. if they know that this is completely BS or something, they're in a lot of trouble. I think since, uh, and, and, and you know, I hesitate to say this about people usually, but in this case, it's, it's true uh, because Siegley is a convicted felon for fraud. Therefore, I think I can legally call him a fraudster. Okay. Yeah. In general. Yeah. Uh, that it's not outside the realm of possibility that in this case, he may have done 
a very good job of taking emails about street facts and making them look like they were about the Facebook and fooling DLA Piper. It'd be a hell of a thing if he did. But it's also within the realm of possibility that he did get his money via fraud and in, did invest it, in fact, in the Facebook or Facebook.com. Yeah, so that, 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 that's true. Just we, because it's, he's, it's all, you know, we all have to, we have to wait and see. But I'm just saying my opinion mm -hmm. on it is given the guy's talents, right. I think that, and given the emails that I've read, and I haven't read all of them yet, uh, I think it, it gets very, uh, it, it, is, it is definitely uh, quite possible that he took those emails and selectively deleted certain ones so that it looked like the train of thought was about Facebook when it was about social facts or made his case look better in a way that DLA Piper doing due diligence would look at it and say, you know what, this, this all looks, looks fair to us, and if it's not... We'll sue the pants off of you. Yeah. Well, I expect Facebook's many attorneys to be calling into character, into question his character on the stand. Is this guy reliable? Is this guy uh, somebody you should believe? Are are emails enough? Are these emails enough to to, to win a case for him? I mean, does, I does, couldn't say definitively either way. I mean, because that's what people usually ask is like, well, anybody can make an email up. Well, what's interesting is that there's supposedly a contract with a witness involved, and this witness per this witness is going to be a big deal, whoever they are. If they are legit, too, what if they're just like, well, I'm going to get a cut of this deal, too? We don't know how this is going to uh, pan out at all. The other big question here is, is Aaron Sorkin already working on the sequel? The <laughs> he Network better too. be. Based this is actually emails. a better story. It really is. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm interested. I mean, the, the funny thing is, is that, and Tom, you're, you're probably right. I mean, this is probably, I, I think in my gut, I feel the same way you do, that Paul Siglia hasn't really shown himself to be a truthful individual and is in the business of trying to get money out of people. Um, let's just say that in this case, he's going to win. Um, back in 2003, 2004, when Zuckerberg was doing work for him, at one point in their agreement, because Zuckerberg was running behind on work for the Facebook site, as they were sort of calling it vaguely, uh, Siglia was to get an additional 1% ownership for every day beyond January 1st, which was some sort of a cutoff date, that it hadn't been completed. Now, if you were to put together how much he would have uh, um, racked up at this point, it's a lot of money. Yeah, I think uh, in, in later emails, they did say something like that uh, Siglia would own up to 80% of Facebook, but then Zuckerberg tried to renegotiate and say, look, let's do 50-50 because this is a really bad deal. And it did look like, according to Siglia's documents, that he did agree to that. So 50% would be the <laughs> max he'd have. That's still a lot of money. It's, yeah, I mean, I don't know what kind of like role he'd have in an ownership at this point. Rich guy on an island. With wood chips. Yeah, the wood, the wood chipper man. I, I, you know, I think it's also quite possible that Zuckerberg built this guy out of $2,000 and then felt bad about it. I think it's less possible that he would have given anybody 50% ownership in a site that he was creating with two, two other guys. You know, forget Eduardo and his other roommate. Uh, you know, he just, and he just, tell, he just throws out 50%. I, I know. It, I, I mean, don't think Zuckerberg's that short-sighted. It depends. I mean, he could just be the subject to the rules of general partnership. You know, if he's a partner with this guy, you're 50-50 by default. I mean, that's another thing. So, like, mm. we're going to have to see, again, how they actually went about that's the business of this whole thing. Some of the, it just doesn't add up, though. I mean, you know, his dad's a dentist, $1,000, 50-50. It's like, I don't really think he needed that so badly that right. he would have entered into such an agreement. He didn't want to borrow money. He says, in, it says in these purported emails that he, he didn't want to buy. He tells Paul Siegel, leave my parents alone. They'll just laugh you off anyway. I need that money from you because I didn't want to borrow money from them. 
Yeah. And then later he says, I've got a trust fund for my parents. Yeah. So I'll just pay I'm, you $2,000 okay. and, and we'll just agree to part ways. I'm doing all right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's move on to Internet Explorer 10. Uh, which is out today, thanks to a, a, a announcement in Las Vegas. Uh, not just NAB going on in Las Vegas. The Mix 11 conference kicked off today with Dean Hachimovich, uh, the pre Microsoft Corporate Vice President, along with the head of Windows, Steve Sanofsky, debuting IE10, uh, the IE10 platform preview, to be absolutely accurate, that you can now download, ie.microsoft.com slash test drive. You can download the platform. They're going to roll out new versions of it every 8 to 12 weeks. Uh, so just short, just as IE9 hits the, hits the, the mainstream, uh, we're getting looks at IE10 already. And they emphasize that it's got CSS3 support. It does native hardware acceleration, native support of HTML5. Uh, took a lot of pot shots at Chrome during the unveiling of it, although they ignored Firefox because Firefox is also very HTML5 compliant and does hardware acceleration, so it didn't compare as well. Although Firefox is arguably a much bigger competitor oh, yeah. to IE than Chrome is. Yeah, but you know, so, Microsoft hates Google, and they'll get every shot they can at Google. It's like, oh, Chrome's no good because we're Microsoft. We don't like you. <laughs> although they did show off a really cool demo. I mean, they had this HTML5 HD video back there. They were shaping it with a fishbowl. Things coming on right now. And there's like, I think, a couple of hundred fish they can add in. Like, the browser was handling all this stuff very nicely and in an extra bit of video they showed that this is actually running on an ARM processor. Yes, that was the big reveal, right? Is they're like, and then if we'll take away the, the drapes, it's an ARM processor. So you, you, they're actually showing off uh, the ability to run Microsoft code on ARM, which they said would come with Windows right. 8. And it HTML5 HD video on ARM, <laughs> which is actually, I think, more impressive. Um, in response to some... Um to some criticism that IE doesn't uh, I turn around um, uh, newer versions as often as other browsers do. It was kind of funny, their reasoning. Um, Hachamovich said, there's a difference between cadence and progress. Increased cadence just means more version numbers. Well, so it's sort oh, of right. like, yeah. well, you know, our turnaround Another time. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of like, well, that's... I guess just well, that's you their veiled shot at Firefox, isn't it? Because Firefox is like, we're going to come out with four, five, six, seven, eight, nine this but year. The, they said Firefox said that because Google has said we're going to continue, we're going to up the pace of the. So Firefox is just responding to Google. So Microsoft's going right after Google there, saying okay. you can increase the no version numbers, but that doesn't mean you're progressing right. any faster. And they have to say that if they're going to slow down the rate at with which they roll out, while everyone else is speeding it up. Also, CN Beta posted screenshots of the Windows App Store from Windows 8, uh, at least allegedly a Windows App Store, but likely that they would roll something like that into Windows 8, I think. Uh, it looked like a Windows Explorer window, and uh, this is a, a Chinese website, uh, so it's a Chinese version, but I, I, think it's, I think it's likely that we're going to see an App Store in Windows because App Stores are the big thing now. And the title bar says Windows App Store. It also explains why Microsoft would be so ferocious against Apple about the whole trademark thing on App Store, hiring a linguist and have all, you know, having all these court documents saying your trademark is invalid. Because if they're building in App Store, although that could be easily changed, I mean, they want to be able to call it that. And it's familiar to people. So, I mean, it, it makes sense because, I mean, why bother... You know, with software going into stores, I don't know when was the last time I went into a store to buy software. You guys remember that? I think Windows 95 for me was the last time I went to a store for that. I got swindled into Mobile Me in a box at the Apple Store when I was there last. The trickery. It was thirty. I mean, I, I ordered Windows 7 online. Uh, the last time I walked in and bought something was probably Vista. 
I went into the local computer store in downtown San Francisco when I worked at CNET. Just walked down there and, and bought it. Uh, you know, got the OEM version because they sold it off the shelf. That would be the last time I walked into a building and picked up a piece of software and paid for it at a checkout. This okay. just makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like we're, we're not really doing it anymore. Windows Vista, that was a while ago. You don't want to do that tomorrow. All right, let's take a uh, quick break and l let, give you a chance to get rid of all of the old gadgets around your office because you know what, or, or your home, you've got new Windows coming out. You've got new IE coming out. You've got new iPhone maybe coming out in the fall. You've got, uh, we, we're going to be talking about the new Android phone from HTC uh, that's coming out. There's all kinds of new gadgets you want to buy, and if you want to pay for them, then you need to sell the old ones, and Gazelle is the easiest way to do it. You can sell smartphones, MP3 players, laptops, gaming consoles, have you guys taken advantage of this yet? Yeah, in fact, um, MG has uh, a huge computer collection that uh, it was threatening to um, need its own closet. Uh, and he recently used one of our codes at Gazelle and got back a lot of money, more than he actually expected. And, and did he have them send him the box or did he box up the stuff himself? He boxed up the stuff himself, See. but you could have a box sent to you if you really, really didn't feel like you could do it yourself, and then all you have to do is figure out a place to send it back. Yeah, they make it easy. You go onto the website, gazelle.com. Uh, you put in the, your gadget. You give it an idea of what condition it's in, what parts you have, if there are cables that are necessary, and then they give you a quote. And right from there, if you've got your own boxes and you're not lazy like me, you can print up the slip, slap it on the box, take it to the post office, doesn't cost you anything to mail it, send it away, and then they will send you the money. If you are lazy like me, they'll even send you a box, but you got to wait for that. Uh, once Gazelle gets your gadget, you get paid by PayPal, by check, by Amazon gift card, uh, by Walmart gift card. You get a 5% bonus, actually, if you get the Amazon gift card. Or you can ask Gazelle to donate the value of your gadget to charity. If your gadgets aren't worth anything, they'll still take them off your hands and recycle them responsibly. So why don't you check it out right now? Take that gadget you've been waiting to get rid of because you're like, well, I don't want to throw it in the trash. That's irresponsible. I think I can get a little money for it. I want to save up some money for a new thing. Go to gazelle.com and use the bonus code TWIT and get a 5% bonus on top of it. You're going to get 5% more just for listening to this show. So gazelle.com, we thank them for their support. Cisco has killed the flip. Oh, Killers. Man. I... I I don't know. Boy, I, you seem to be I playing felt, that a lot. I, I, well, I a lot like, of things are getting killed, it yeah. seems. Like we all saw this coming. Yeah. And no kidding. I, I'm just not surprised. There was a, It was funny. In online, uh, all the folks who were interested in this story, it, they seemed to really be divided. You know, some people were saying, yeah, I mean, obviously, who's going to buy a flip? Everyone's got phones and their cameras now. And, and the other half saying, why didn't Cisco just try to sell flip? Flip was a good business. Right, because What's they, wrong they actually have shut down the, the, the Flip operation uh, inside of Cisco. They didn't sell it. They didn't merge it into anything else. They just killed it. And and uh, John, uh, what's his name? The, the founder of Flip. No, not Chambers. John Kaplan, Kaplan uh, told Kara Swisher at All Things D. He's like, we were profitable, uh, you know, but... That didn't matter. Uh, Cisco is shutting down the consumer business group. They weren't targeting just Flip. Mm -hmm. All consumer businesses are now being redistributed to support five key company priorities, core routing, switching and services, collaboration, architectures, and video. Uh, so other victims of this are UMI, their consumer teleconferencing, which gets uh, put into the business telepresence, so no more consumer 
teleconferencing. They just take that technology and use it in business telepresence. And uh, the uh, core video technology from Cisco's EOS Media Solutions will now be used elsewhere in the company as well. So they're trying to show the stock market we're, we're serious. We're, we're a serious business. We're not messing around with consumer stuff anymore. And for the most part, Cisco, you'd find their stuff in the enterprise. And when they bought Linksys, that was somewhat of a surprise going to the consumer market. Buying pure digital and going to the consumer market confused a lot of us. Because we're like, why are they getting this little camera company? Are they going to build a networking? Are we getting really cool, like almost what happened with the iFi, where you could actually stream your stuff over Wi-Fi? That just didn't really happen very quickly. And, and the other thing is, for everyone who's really mad about losing Flip, there are a lot of options out there. There's Kodak. You can get an iPod Touch. You can get anything that probably has a camera on it. Uh, I don't know if, if uh, it was such a great idea just to kill it outright. I think Sarah got the Sony Bloggy. The Bloggy Touch, HD, 3D, mm -hmm. whatever they got now. I mean, I, I, they could have sold it off, but I mean, what's the lifespan for something like this anymore? I mean, it was kind of a cool idea when it came out because camcorders were so expensive, and having one in your pocket was kind of neat. You but know, now, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you why they didn't sell it. Intellectual property. They've probably got a, a, some IP from Flip that they feel like it's worth holding on to, mm. but there really isn't anything Flip can help them with anywhere else in the company. So they just shut it down. They're going to they're gonna fire 550 employees uh, as part of this, not all from, from the Flip effort, from the consumer business group. Uh, and they say, you know what? Instead of selling it, it's worth it to hold on for the IP. That's my guess. They've got patents. They've got copyrights. I think that's a good guess. You know, originally it was like, well, maybe they tried to shop, flip around, and nobody really wants... I mean, they're certainly not going to make back 500, uh, $590 million, which they paid for Flip in 2009. I remember there was a window where Flip was a really cool thing to have. I had yeah. one in my, my in my purse. I carried it around with me all the time. As soon as my iPhone camera took advantage of HD video never turned it on again. In fact, I don't even know where my flip is. I wonder if Cisco's going to continue to sell the Cisco iPhone. <laughs> Remember, they own the name <laughs> iPhone. It's yeah. a VoIP phone, I think, right? It is, a, it is a VoIP phone that continued to sell it last time I checked, which was a couple months ago, <laughs> and they licensed the name to Apple. Well, that would be awesomely confusing. I think I'm going to buy one. You should. I need an enterprise VoIP system, but then I'm going to buy one. We can put one in at the new studio, right? Sure. Yeah. Ah, the HTC Pyramid is official now. It's got a new name called the HTC Sensation. HTC had a London announcement today. Uh, the HTC Sensation 4G will be a dual-core 1.2 gigahertz Snapdragon processor, 4.3-inch screen, so it's one of these big, luscious screen phones. Uh, it'll come with gingerbread, HTC's new Sense 3.0, and uh, the thing that separates it from the HTC Evo 3D, other than it not having 3D, is an 8-megapixel rear camera uh, it's only got a 1.2 front, but it's a nice big camera. They're emphasizing video. It can take 30 frames per second video at 1080p resolution. And they're also bundling in their Netflix-like video service called HTC Watch. Uh, four gigabytes of internal storage. It's going to launch in the UK, Germany, and the rest of HTC's key European markets in mid-May. Vodafone gets an exclusive for a couple weeks before it goes to other carriers. And coming to the United States on T-Mobile, which means it'll be an HSPA Plus phone. Uh, sometime in the summer. If you take a look at the article, I almost misread it. It said you get download speeds of 14.4, and I was thinking kilobits per second. They're, they're talking megabits per second. So even though it's it's T-Mobile's uh, HSPA Plus, that's still really fast. If it's if even if it, the whole 4G moniker may not be fitting anymore, uh, it seems like a really cool phone. I mean, the design is neat. This contoured glass thing, I don't really know about that trend. Is that really that helpful? Uh, do you guys have problems with flat front screens? Because I don't. 
No, not at all. That's just nifty. Uh, yeah. That's yeah. just something to just make people in the store yeah. go, ooh, that's neat. Honestly, at this point, you got to stand out from the pack somehow. Contour mm-hmm. the glass, if that's what you have to do. Okay. Well, I, I like the ATC Sense UI. I mean, that thing always made Android look good, and now they have a newer version of it, and they have some really cool-looking 3D style effects anyway. So if you wanted something that looks new... This looks really nice. And, and I mean, it's Gorilla Glass. Somebody in the chat room was like, well, that'll make it easier to scratch, but it's Gorilla Glass. Well, that's the other thing. The contour is when you place the uh, device uh, with screen side down, it actually raises the screen mm-hmm. off the surface. So you're not going to scratch it accidentally uh, unless you really have something giant on, on, the, on the desk or something. Huffington Post is facing a class action lawsuit from angry bloggers who think that they should get paid for the big sale of HuffPo to AOL. Jonathan Tassini is leading the charge. Uh, Tassini sued the New York Times once uh, on behalf of paid freelancers because they didn't get paid again when the New York Times put their articles in LexisNexis. Remember LexisNexis? I do. Exactly. They're still around. Wow. Back in the 90s. Uh, well, the New York Times responded when they lost that case by removing most freelance articles from LexisNexis, which is probably not the result Tassini was looking for. We'll see what happens this time. Tassini says he and other bloggers provided one-third of the sale value of Huffington Post when they contributed articles for free, and they want $105 million of the sale price uh, as part of the class action. That's the big difference between this and the New York Times one is that the New York Times one was paid freelancers, and this one, everyone was working for free. I don't really know what kind of leg he has to stand on on this because flat out, you knew, these guys knew they weren't getting paid for this, and most people went and published on HuffPo for exposure. It's not about getting paid. And to think they actually provided a third of the value, I don't, I don't think there's any math on any of the articles I've read as to how they came up with that. Well, well Tassini says that um, it's not a copyright claim. It's that they use deceptive marketing laws. Um, and because uh, HuffPo didn't share how many page views they were actually getting, they presented themselves as a free forum for ideas while actually building a product with substantial value. So he's kind of saying, listen, we had no idea what kind of numbers you were pulling in. Had we known, we wouldn't be contributing anything for free. I find that to be a very sour grape kind of an argument. I mean, I, I, I empathize with anybody who was contributing to the Huffington Post and getting no money back. I mean, people have been complaining about this for quite a while now. But, you, yeah, you knew what you were doing, and you were getting exposure because of all those page views. I think the New York Times owes me money for <laughs> sending them letters to the editor that they published, except they've never published one of my letters to the editor. But isn't that the same thing? It's like, had. look, HuffPo said, we will take your stuff and we will publish it for free and you get exposure. And that's the deal. And, and it doesn't seem like there's a lot of room for marketing fraud in there. There wasn't a sort of like, hey, we'll take your articles, we'll put them on HuffPo, but nobody reads us. We're not very valuable. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that leads you to go, okay, well, that would be fine. No, it's quite the opposite. It's like, look, we won't pay you for them, but we're so popular and valuable that'll be worth it just for the exposure for you to give us stuff. I don't know how different the numbers were that he's claiming they saw, but I mean, people write for HuffPo because of the exposure. Everyone kind of knows it had a ton of page views in the first place. And then you could have on your resume, published on HuffPo. It's a big deal. I mean, I, I just, I can't I'm not saying it was paid. smart for people to, to buy into that, but it's not like HuffPo was lo- lying to them about the value. I wonder how much Jonathan Tazzini is pulling on a, um, a lawsuit that the AOL went through uh, that Peter Kafka at All Things D had highlighted earlier. In 1999, uh, AOL, this is pre-Time Warner days, uh, used to use volunteers to run things like, uh, to moderate chat rooms and things like that. 
And a bunch of them got together and sued AOL and won. Uh, it took them a decade to get through that lawsuit, but about a thousand of them or whoever was uh, involved in lawsuit ended up getting 15 million settlement. So I wonder if it's sort of like, hey, AOL's in charge now. Let's go after AOL, get some money. I mean, I, they're going to divide it up. No one's going to get rich off of this, but it's sort of a principal thing. All right, uh, let's move on. Our last story could be about Adobe Flash having another critical vulnerability or Bing now powering 30% of U.S. searches. What do you think? Bing. 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 Bing, Bing decides. Bing. Uh, yeah, Adobe Flash, another critical vulnerability. Sadly, these days just makes me go, hmm, mm, I kind of expected that. Uh, I did not expect that Bing would be up to 30% of U.S. searches, although every time uh, somebody like Hitwise, in this case, comes out with numbers, I always look at it and go, oh, Bing went up a little bit. That's interesting. So this time they went up uh, from just over 25% to 30%. And they've been doing that since they premiered. When, when MSN Search changed its name to Bing, they were at 8%. Actually, they think they went up to 8%. And everybody like, oh, that's close to 10%. And then incrementally, little bits, every study, they mm -hmm. get a little bigger and a little bigger until now, all of a sudden, without realizing it, you look at it and they're about a third of U.S. searches. Well, that's because they're on Bing and Yahoo, because it's Bing-powered searches that they're, they're combining on Hitwise. So, I mean, there are a lot of people who are probably still stuck on Yahoo from like back when it was like the default or their Yahoo toolbar. I mean, they're using IE6 with the Yahoo toolbar. It's possible before there was this or they, they, they somehow got bounced from MSN Live over to Bing. I mean, uh, it actually is a good service. I like Bing. I've used it a, a, a number of times. When I can't find something on Google. <laughs> You're about to say a couple times. <laughs> You're, I've used it a couple times. I have. It's I enjoy fine. it. When, I when used I, it for a month. When I can't find something on <laughs> Google did. is when I go to Bing. Because Google's like, oh, here are the same six results. I'm like, well, I don't want these. And Bing will actually find this stuff that I'm looking for. Also, the image search is really good. So, I mean... The new iPad app is awesome. Oh, that's right. I do turn to Bing for image search a lot of times. When I, when I look at Google and I, and I find something, but it's like, I bet I could find something better. I will go to Bing. Uh, I, I went back from Bing as my default search after a month to Google because there were just too many times where I knew... I, w I could find the answer, and it mm -hmm. wasn't showing up on Bing. I don't know if that says more to m about me as a user of Google and how I've trained myself to know how to get the best results out of it, uh, or if it's just that Bing isn't as good at the general search. But they're, they're good at individual-specific things. They do a lot of little things good, like local searching when you're looking for best restaurants. Instead of just getting ridiculous results, you actually get stuff nearby. So, I mean, we use it in our house. Actually, my wife uses it a lot. She installed the Bing app on iPad, strangely enough, now that I think about it. So she bings and decides in your household. That's right. I wonder how much um, someone in the chat room mentions, uh, and it's a good point, how much Facebook ties into this. Because uh, there's Bing search within Facebook as well. I mean, right. if, that's part of, that. if that's part of these numbers, I'm not really surprised. We don't as think... Search, Facebook search continues we to We think grow. they would note that if Facebook's internal search was part of the Bing numbers. The way they note that Yahoo's search right. is part of the Bing numbers. Uh, but, th but that's a good question because that could actually make their share a little bigger. All right, let's move on to the news fuse. A new report issued by the Chinese government is taking the United States to task for its stances on technology. Turnabout is fair play. Citing numbers from the ACLU, more than 6,600 travelers have been subject to electronic device searches between October 2008 and June 2010. The report also calls the U.S. a hypocrite for its request for Internet freedom in other countries, while an Internet kill switch bill floated around Washington, D.C. in June 2010. Of course, that bill didn't become law, but... It could, and there's another version that could. So there, U.S., ha-ha. You're not so clean with your, with your porn. <laughs> you have porn. 
Microsoft's claiming that Google's apps for government do not have valid certification under the Federal Information Security Management Act, or FISMA, and uh, Google lied. Google outright lied about having the certification. Google's saying, we didn't lie, actually, Microsoft. So if you're wondering who's lying, actually, Google actually does have FISMA certification for Google Apps, but not Google Apps for government directly. Those are two different things, says an analyst. He's familiar with the ways of Washington. He sees this as an example of Google's inexperience with dealing with the federal government, not necessarily a lie. Yeah, Google might need a better lawyer. Microsoft is busy these days. It's also rolling out a Street View competitor in Europe called StreetSide. Navtech is uh, Microsoft's partner in this enterprise and will be photographing urban areas first. Considering Google's trouble with European privacy laws in general and their bungled attempt to collect Wi-Fi data in particular, Microsoft said they will hold off collecting uh, Wi-Fi data until they get it right. That's a quote, too. We want, we want, to, we want to get this right. <laughs> uh, it ain't dead yet, folks. But it's not feeling too good. Symbian, Nokia's lame duck mobile OS, is getting an update. You'll see new icons, a new browser, new maps, and more. The updates will be coming to the N8, the E7, the C7, and the C6-01. Some new Nokia phones will have the updated Symbian preloaded. So what do you do when you've got this old clunky computer at work and nobody in the IT department Sell is going to help you? Oh, well, it's not yours. You if, you, do if you don't know, yeah, yeah, if you don't know about Gazelle, uh, and if you're French, oh, you're right. likely to break the computer in hopes of getting an upgrade. That's sort of like an episode of The Office. A new poll of 3,000 office workers in Europe backs this up. Apparently, the French, the French were three times more likely to smash their computers <laughs> in hopes of getting a better one than their German counterparts. The Germans said... They trusted their bosses to get them new equipment when possible. We should have had uh, Patrick Beja on the show today to talk about that. We should ask him directly. Cult of Mac is reporting that Apple is working on carbon fiber iPods with Wi-Fi syncing. The site also is reporting that Apple has been working on iPod Wi-Fi syncing for two years and that Steve Jobs is behind this movement. Apparently, the carbon fiber material is supposed to make connections more reliable while allowing for iPods to retain their pretty stylings, oh, which is weird because, pretty. you know, I think the Zune had... Uh, Wi-Fi syncing for a long time. Yeah, did it, did it have a carbon fiber body, though? I don't know well, if it had pretty stylings. It Maybe it was the color brown that did it. Its Wi-Fi was, must have been really bad because it wasn't pretty. Exactly. Uh, good news, bad news. If you're a prepaid AT&T user, the good news is that AT&T has lowered its fee if you go over your data usage. Now it costs $5 for 10 megabytes for data compared to $5 for 1 megabyte. That's mega, megabytes. The bad news is that if you use a gigabyte of data, because people actually use data in gigabytes these days per month, it'll cost you $500 for one gigabyte. If you're a data person and you can afford it, wow. you're probably better off getting an AT&T contract with an Android or iPhone where a gigabyte overage costs you $10. But if you're poor, then AT&T will charge you $500. That doesn't make any sense. It is very confusing. I, I hope people get mad about that. Intel is serious about getting its processors into the mobile space. PC World says that a GM for Intel is showing off Cloverview, not to be confused with Cloverfield. Cloverview, a new chip designed for tablets. The processor is supposed to lower power consumption with its 32 nanometer manufacturing process. Intel also, Intel also plans to get into 22 nanometers within two years with Sandy Bridge's successor, Ivy Bridge. So throw an oak trail and it's like a... Fantasy Adventure Land inside the naming <laughs> meetings at Intel. Cedar Trail. Walk over Oak Trail with the, the Ivy, Ivy Bridge. Bridge. Oh, look, it's Poison Ivy. That's our security threat. I think they're just like, Google's having fun. Let's have fun names also. 
Sandy Bridge, Sandy and Ivy and Bridge, Ivy Oak and Trails, Oak. Cedar mm. Be- oh. mm. Birdies. It smells good out here in the processors. All right, let's finish off with uh, an MIT uh, technology review story about researchers in California creating a way to place a cell phone call using your mind. What? It's a brain-computer interface that, amongst some people, is almost 100% accurate uh, after a brief training period. The system was developed by Chi-Ping Zheng, a researcher at the Swartz Center for Computational Neuroscience at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, besides acting, a- a- along with some colleagues, besides acting as an ultra-portable aid for severely disabled people, the system may one day have broader uses. Uh, you are trained to look at a visual feedback system and each number oscillates at a different frequency. So with electrodes in a headband, they can actually tell which number you're looking at. So it's a little bit of a trick. You're not thinking the number and it dials, Mm -hmm. but you are looking at the numbers and they can tell which number you're looking at. And if you look at them in order, the electrodes can read that and then transmit it by Bluetooth to a phone and then the phone dials. Uh, The author of this, uh, or I'm sorry, not the author, but the, uh, the researcher said that uh, she, she could only get it up to 85% accuracy, uh, but there were several subjects who were asked to input a 10-digit ten, phone number, and seven of them achieved 100% accuracy out of the 10. Well, if you could concentrate on particular oscillations, couldn't you just have, like, pictures of things instead of the actual number? I mean, why would you have to go through all of this to dial anything? Well, which would you rather look at when you're trying to think of 365-1515? Would you like to look at Teddy Bear Duck? No, no. I mean, like, if I'm going to call whoever's at that phone number, it should be their picture. I can just concentrate on that picture because this is a lot more difficult. Oh, well, yeah, I think you could. Well, no, this is just the basic research. They're saying, you know, we're figuring out how to do this. But I I think with this research, you absolutely could program the headset to transmit. It would be like any other phone. Like, why do you have numbers on a phone? Well, you need to put the number in at first at some point, but then you could do quick dialing. This is a question I ask often. You could assign assign a picture that's... Then you just look at the picture. Yeah, we're not going to be seeing this on cell phones anytime soon because you needed a large screen and a headband, which, unless you're rocking your 80s-style thing, right? You're not going to bring it back. Playing basketball. I mean... People wear, like, crazy pieces of plastic in their ear and walk around talking to each other. Who thought that would ever happen? That is true. That's really sad for the future. Yep. (laughs) And that is the future we face. (laughs) On to the calendar and see what else is in the future. Today is the 50th anniversary, so we're going into the past, of human space flight by Yuri Gagarin of the USSR. Yay. Happy 50th anniversary, Yuri. night. Uh, Opera 11.1 is launched, and the company says it's the most expensive ad ever we created. Cost us about $8,500, and we spent $1,500 of that on trendy Swedish clothes. The upgrade includes fun really? stuff like turbo mode that promises to Headbands. load pages quickly when you're on a Probably. slow connection, like among other things. They're getting the word out. You got to spend money. I mean... $8,500 for a commercial? Maybe they'll go from 2% to 3%. Maybe. market share. You got to spend. Uh, Thunderbolt news is coming out of NAB in Vegas this week. If you're wondering who's actually going to make Thunderbolt a reality, Aja, Blackmagic, and Matrox have all announced new video input-output and processing boxes that offer Thunderbolt connectivity to a host machine. Promise Technology has also announced a new Thunderbolt to fiber channel SAN adapter. So there are it's happening. real Thunderbolt things. Yeah, it's happening. T-Mobile 4G Mobile Hotspot is hitting stores tomorrow. We expected this, but it's still happening. Froyo-based LG Thrive has become AT&T's first prepaid smartphone, shipping April 17th. The social browser Flock will no longer be supported as of April 26th. Uh, Many of you might remember Flock was, I think Flock came into 
came on the scene early 2007. I didn't play yeah, for it. was like 2007, that, 2008. For that long, you know, it was kind of like for Flickr users, it was it was like um, Rock Melt before there was Rock Melt. Yes. A browser that incorporates It was, wow, social, social networking is a big deal. Let's make a browser that... And then there was that mashup of Rock Melt and Flock called Flock Melt. <laughs> Rock Flock. Rock Flock, was. yeah. Yeah, and that didn't work either. Rock Melt's still around, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I give it a shorter life. In fact, people lights, are lights discovering it every fall. day. Have you heard about Rock Melt? Yeah. Yeah. Stop about using years it. Ago. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just, you know, it's hard. To say. Anyway, HTC, HTC Flyer begins shipping on May 9th across Europe. And on June 19th, The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time 3D will be hitting store shelves for mm. $39.99. I smell a hit right there. Nintendo 3DS, 3D Zelda, 3D Link. What does a hit smell like? Um, Victory. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Victory and pot roast. (laughs) And uh, napalm in the morning. Mm. On to the emails. TNT at twit.tv. Nitten writes in and says, I love the fact that you guys also cover more scientifically oriented stories, like the one about Stripe Spotter, a piece of software developed for use in computer-assisted individual animal identification, which is a big help to ecologists. I was curious and so read the original paper published in the International Conference on Multimedia Retrieval. And to answer Sarah's question, the authors say that this technique can apply, not just to zebras, but any animal with prominent morphological characteristics like stripes or large patches. Examples include giraffes, tigers, as well as antelopes called kudu. So we were right. We were right, except that it still doesn't help the poor panther. Well, you could apply a patch to the panther. Right. You have to spray paint the panther, and right. then you can track well, it. Well, okay. So, a stencil. Close enough. Yeah. It's much easier than injecting them with a tracker. Right. Well, but, I mean, yeah. It's, it's, so, it's not just zebras. It's interesting-looking animals, I guess. Uh, next email from Dave says, Hi, folks. Your discussion on yesterday's show about people playing games or watching ads for some sort of reward was really fun for me to listen to. It might seem odd that such things act as reinforcers, but it should be remembered that a reinforcer is any event which makes behavior more likely. For example, we could think of a rat being given a food pellet, that's a reinforcer, after a bar press, behavior as a typical situation or giving your dog a treat when he does something good. But look at that definition. In my classes, I can say clearly that tests reinforce studying behavior, so the tests themselves are reinforcers. Even more oddly, kids will work for meaningless star stickers on schoolwork or I'll play Xbox games for useless achievements. The Xbox achievement system was developed by a guy I know, in fact, John Hobson, who has a PhD in experimental psychology from Duke. So he's a smart guy. He also did some killer work on animal timing. But that's neither here nor there. Tom's correct. As long as something activates that mesolimbic dopamine system you'll do it again and again and again until you go blind mesolimbic dopamine system is my simple minds cover band <laughs> how's that all going it's going it's going, going well thanks yeah. yeah i've never heard of you guys before you just said that so it must not be going well tom well, they're so underground. They <laughs> yeah. so oh, have you never? That's true. What is wrong with you people? <laughs> that is a that is an internet meme that I'm executing here. All right. Uh, thank you, Dave Broadbeck. Uh, he says that we owe him money now because we used his content, and uh, he hopes that oh. class action lawsuit goes oh. through so that he can <laughs> sue us it. now. <laughs> Thanks. Don't hold your breath. Thanks. Dave. Thank you. All right, that's it for this edition of Tech News Today. Uh, you can watch us live every day at 5.30 Eastern, 2.30 Pacific, live.twit.tv, or you can catch us on our website, twit.tv slash TNT. Email us, tnt at twit.tv, or give us a call. 260-TNT-SHOW is the phone number. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.